It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And to that end, on this episode, I was joined by Simon Usherwood, Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe, and Sir Bob Kerslake, Lord Kerslake no less, plain old Bob he insists as being known as, but more importantly he's the former head of the civil service. Now obviously there's been much talk of the civil service's role in Brexit. Can they cope with the demands? Do they even want to? Are they trying to undermine it? And inevitably we spoke about this with Bob. Our chat took place at the same UK in a Changing Europe event on devolution where we spoke to Bernard Jenkin and you heard that uh, episode a few weeks ago. But the timing was apposite as the row that involved DexEU Minister, that's the Department for Exiting the EU, uh, DexEU Minister Steve Baker and his claim that the Treasury were deliberately fiddling forecasts to try and keep the UK in the customs union was fairly fresh in the news. So we started talking about that and talking about what were Steve Baker's motivations. Why did he do it? Was he just was it an honest mistake? Is he a bit stupid? Or was he trying, making a, a genuine attempt to undermine the civil service for some reason? I think it was a bit sloppy, if I'm honest with you. And I mean, in truth, the economic forecasts were inconvenient. Mm. In the way that, and they were clearly leaked, and that's not helpful mm. uh, to civil servants. So all of that probably combined to say let's let's just dismiss their relevance and say they're not important. But um, in truth, they are important. Then nobody ever produces a perfect forecast, I guess, unless they're very very fortunate. Um, but they are the best analysis that, that could be done at the time. And in truth. If you make trade harder with your biggest trading partner, you don't have to be a genius to see that it's likely to have an impact on the economy. True, yes, you think. Um, so, uh, well, given the options I laid out, I mean, they may not be the full options. Somewhere between he's a bit stupid and he was trying to undermine the civil service. <laughs> putting words in my no. mouth. Well, uh, all right, right by all means, use this. different words, but that's. <laughs> I'm not going to make a comment about his intellectual capability. But if that's a sliding scale. I think um, he perhaps he's a relatively new. Let's give him the benefit of that. He's a relatively new minister who hadn't quite got the point that um, it's not in, it's not part of his role to um, to undermine the people who who do the job for him day in day out, and crucially aren't in a position to respond. I think that's a, it's a relatively cheap political point to, to make that you can't, you know, civil, if civil servants then come back and say, well, no, this is wrong, then they sort of confirm the charge and undermine the, yeah. the impartiality that they're, they're, they're operating under. So, yeah, it, the, the people that he was speaking to were a constituency who probably weren't terribly well disposed to the civil service in the first place. Mm. So it's, it's kind of... Uh, well, yeah, does it feed into the, the broader Brexiteer narrative of experts are bad? Yeah, I think it does to a degree. I think um, it, it, it is sort of saying uh, 
well, these guys get it wrong, therefore, why do we take any account of what they say? I think they're more likely to be right, the experts, and, and you should listen to them than doing it without any on a fact-free basis, if I can put it that way. Is that right, Simon? Should people listen yeah. to you? But you're more likely to be right than people should listen to you. Well, I think the difference is that experts, when they get it wrong, will think about why they've got it wrong and then talk about how they can try and get it less wrong next time. So, mm-hmm. again, it's, it, it's giving people agendas, you know, saying that experts are not just experts, it's also people who want certain things. And it comes back to, to, to Bob's point about attitudes, that attitudes move more slowly than what you might have to do. And if you can say, these people have got an interest in keeping things how they were, you know, they've done very well out of the European Union. You know, like I've got a career now out of the European Union. Sure. Uh, so I obviously will be in favour of it carrying on. Well, I know. I've, got, I've got a career out of Brexit. I was going to say, you've got a career out of Brexit, you've got a bigger profile and a bigger career possibility out of Brexit. So. But those, I think those kind of narratives do tie to sort of the bigger questions about disconnects. You know, people feel that politicians and experts don't really care about the man or woman in the street. Hmm. Um, and I think that's been quite a potent charge. It's one of the things that was very big in the referendum, you know, that this is a chance to show these people who's actually the boss. Hmm. Well, what springs to mind, I mean, as you, you say, the minister's job is not to undermine the civil service. To what extent does that cut both ways? Because, of course, since Steve Baker's attack, we've had Sir Martin Donnelly, uh, former permanent secretary at the Department for International Trade, who has some might say, undermined Liam Fox with his claim that we're cashing in a three-course dinner for a packet of crisps by leaving the EU. It's not a civil servant's or ex-civil servant's job to undermine ministers, is it? No, I don't think it's to undermine ministers, I agree with that. This is the dilemma, and I think it's a fair challenge. I think later on uh, today in the event, uh, Bernard Jenkins is speaking, and he has said, I don't think former civil servants should declare where they stood on, on Brexit. Now, I think that's quite difficult, really. I think we are retired, some retired longer than others, let's put it that way. We're not now civil servants, and we are expressing our views as not as uh, senior civil servants, but as individuals who, who uh, quite clearly look at the world and, and, and think about it. And if you're in the Lords, then it's very hard to avoid giving your views on these issues. It would be rather odd if you did, it seems to me. So I don't quite buy that argument, but I can also see that um, uh, those who have left, arguably maybe they've left in part because they think they can't follow through on the policies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it will look like it's a kind of, everybody's conspiring to um, work against our uh, intent of leaving. But I think people genuinely, and this is the point I wanted to make, look at where we're heading and are genuinely worried. I don't think on the whole civil service like Martin Donnelly, I know him, he's a very um, you know, capable guy, he's not a guy you, you would immediately think of as a... Um, he's got a good turn of phrase. He has a good turn of phrase, but he's not a natural born rebel, let's put it that way. I mean, that hasn't been his um, uh, role in life, chosen role in life historically, uh, I'm just saying that he's kind of reached a point where he thinks I have to say something because I am genuinely concerned about where this is all heading. Does that happen a lot? Civil servants get frustrated with the, the, the constrictions that they have to operate under and leave so that they can talk more freely? Not very often, to be honest. Has it happened more post-Brexit? 
I think it... Difficult to judge, because I can't say I know exactly why people have left. Mm-hmm. I don't know why sure. Martin, whether it was a good point you know, in his life to leave, or sure. whether it was frustrations with Brexit. But I, I think Brexit does... Um, you know, if, if there was going to be an issue which you said, I find myself in fundamental disagreement with the direction we're going, Brexit would be one of those, wouldn't it, if you see what I mean? You might argue that um, whilst there have been clearly differences of views between the political parties over time, they've all worked from within a kind of broad sure. uh, understanding of where we were going on some key issues. And this is a, this is a kind of uh, a fissure, isn't it? It's a tear in the mm. political fabric. And so it's not surprising that it has, for some people, that effect in relation to civil servants as well. Um, do the uh, interventions by people like Sir Martin and perhaps Bob to some extent, does that feed into the sort of Brexiteer suspicion that the civil servants are, at the end of the day, all Remainers and somehow sabotaging the process? Partly, but again, it's one of those things that's largely confirmation bias. Mm. That, you know, it's the kind of thing they would say, isn't it? Right. And, and what Remainers looking at that go, and oh, aren't civil servants great because they're going to save us from Brexit, sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I, again, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily changes people's attitudes, but it's past that bigger picture and those kind of underlying attitudes. Yeah, if you feel um, uh, passionate about Brexit, then you're going to look for people who um, might be... Yeah, um, and I guess the, I think the risk here, and it goes back to your question about the civil services, is that as the challenge of Brexit becomes more evident and the difficulties that are associated with it become more clear, um, there is going to be a temptation to say this, we're having these problems not because these are intrinsically difficult issues, but because some people are getting in the way. So you're looking for scapegoats, bluntly, and you know, House of Lords, civil servants, they're kind of eating territory, aren't they? (laughs) You must be in the worst possible position, right? (laughs) Civil servant and lord. Oh, you're a real. You're a. called you a traitor, or uh, uh, I've got a beard beard as well, and that's so that probably. There's nothing wrong with having a beard. No, this is true. This is true. No sandals, though. No sandals. No sandals. But. But there is a sense in which, um, you know, what we were just told might be an easy process, right? Uh, and what we were told would un- unlock £350 million a week to go into the NHS is not happening. Um, there are big challenges with Brexit. Um, well, even if you're a supporter of Brexit, there are big challenges. And so, to some extent, there's a bit of scapegoating going on. We have to be honest about this. Um, just before we move on, uh, we mentioned the, the crisps three-course dinner issue. Yeah. Simon, would you ever trade in a three-course dinner for a packet of crisps? You're a big fan of Monster Munch? Skips? Space Raiders? If you put it like that, I mean, it's not, nobody would go for that. I would. Unless, you know, it depends on what the three-course dinner is. Something awful at a vegan restaurant versus a packet of McCoys, uh, I'd go for the McCoys every time. No, I think, I, I think William Rees... Sorry, actually, I said William Rees Mogg. God, that was for you. Um, <laughs> I think Jacob Rees Mogg might, because he might say it's better to have a packet of crisps as a free man. Yeah, if I've chosen a free the free course dinner in the uh, European Union... Uh, jail. Jail. And sometimes you want a packet of crisps. Well, the Prime Minister Minister is a big fan of salt and vinegar crisps, isn't she? I just remembered maybe there's some sort of, maybe that's what he was referring to. 
Maybe um, Doritos might tempt me, but... Uh, Doritos? Yeah. That's an area choice. Wow. Um, I just mentioned, you know, Romanians will look at, possibly look at the civil service and think, you know, oh, it can save us from Brexit. It comes to the fundamental question, which I, I sort of suggested I was going to ask you. Who does run the country? Can the civil service stop Brexit, even if they wanted to? It, you know, who's got more power, really, politicians or oh, yeah. civil servants? I'm very, very clear as politicians. Um, I've never thought that the civil service is truly in charge and will, in its view, will prevail. There are powerful civil servants. Um, and there are powerful politicians, but in the end, politics will trump. There's no question about it in my mind. If anything, in a sense, and I don't think, by the way, even if they wanted to, civil servants alone could stop uh, Brexit. I think if anything stops Brexit, it's if uh, when we come to a decision about the deal, what's on offer, uh, which will come, I guess, later on in this year, at some point in October, November, and frankly, the deal looks damaging to British, seriously damaging to British economic and other interests, then you have to ask the question, are we doing the right thing? Um, you know, I think the most um, germane question asked um, uh, following the Prime uh, Minister's mansion speech was by the German reporter who said, is it worth it? And, and in truth, she didn't exactly jump to say, of course it is. No, but when asked it again in the House of Commons, she whispered, yes. What was that? Oh, that was a bit weird. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> She's not, not uh, convincing, so, is she, on this one? I so I think it will be more about the kind of, how can I put it, the, the kind of real world consequences of Brexit that might alter the course of uh, where we go than, than whether civil servants like it or dislike it. All right, take off your civil servant hat, put on your lordly hat, whatever that might be, a tricot, they do the doffing, that they have fancy hats in the House of Lords. Um, can, can or will the Lords stop Brexit? No, and there's never any prospect that they would. And, and let's be clear, the bill that's in the, uh, the Lords at the moment, um, the EU withdrawal bill, is not uh, ushering in Brexit, actually. It's dealing with the consequences of Brexit when we've left. And all of the debate and amendments on that bill are about how to improve the bill rather than to say this is a vehicle by which we can stop Brexit. Uh, it, is, it isn't and, and never could be. And the Lords can't have that power. Ultimately, the Lords are there to scrutinise, to challenge, to push things back to the um, House of Commons. Uh, and that might look like an attempt to stop Brexit, it, but it isn't and it can't be. In the end, it has to be about what the House of Commons does in relation to the deal that comes back from, from the negotiations. Um, even though in our podcast with uh, Angela Smith, I suggested I was looking forward to watching the Brexit bill going through the Lords because it would be really exciting and lots of late night mm. sessions. I haven't actually watched that much of it. Uh, have, you been, have you been involved I yet? have, I have. Um, uh, there have been others who are a lot more active. Um, and uh, Brexit is like kind of... I'm trying to think. It's like one of those very popular shows in which you know at some point it's going to be running on the telly you know, in America. They say Lucy. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I love Lucy show is going yes. to be on at some point. Friends so, these days is on Channel Four nonstop. Yeah. Channel Friends would be the parallel, wouldn't it? You know, it's always there. Yeah. Really. It's yeah. always around you, so you never miss an opportunity if you want to 
get your little dose of Brexit, it's there at some point. In yeah. the, in, so I'm, I am involved, but not as actively as others. And I, I spoke on the Charter of Fundamental Rights, and, and, and that was a, that's a textbook example of an issue where people are asking the question, why is out of all the bills that we're bringing in from all the uh, powers that we're bringing in, legislation we're bringing in, why has that one been excluded? That's a perfectly legitimate debate to have, whether you're for or against Brexit, it seems to me. Um, so that's a, a very good example of the Lords playing its uh, challenging and scrutiny role. So I have been involved, but I think this is, I'll be very direct about it. We have one of those unusual combinations here with Brexit, is that it is both uh, dull and deadly at the same yes. time. Um, and so you find yourself sometimes struggling to focus basically on it, and yet you know that there's some big things happening that could uh, shape our lives and that is a bit of the challenge in the Lords to be honest mm, it's the Brexit is boring rallying cry would you agree Simon? yeah it's what it's boring a lot of it is incredibly technical involved it requires high levels of exposure to the various dimensions to kind of grasp the bit but it really matters and that's the difficulty and I, mean, I think if I ever have a worry, it's that people don't really kind of see all of that. They just kind of want the headlines. You know, what will be interesting is what happens when we get to March next year uh, and the UK leaves. And do people say, well, that's enough, we've left, and we don't really care about the details. So in all the arguments we have about what kind of Brexit we have, most people are not. Well, you've got to hope not, like from your career point of view, you've got to hope this is going to go on yeah, for years and years. And it is. From my career point of view, they will become yeah. you know, aware of what the impact of decisions yeah. are. And, you know, the problem is a bit like the referendum, you know, the, the day after the referendum, the biggest search on Google was, what is the European Union? Which is, <laughs> uh, it's stable doors and horses, isn't it? And it, it I, you know, I worry about the same, that we might get to a Brexit that people say fine, but then afterwards say, well, what's this that you organised for us and the point to be engaged is now. Um, I think that's a dodgy stat that people were, because uh, you don't know who was googling what is no, the EU. I bet it was mainly coming from the Westminster lobby, but it's mainly journalists <laughs> covering it for the previous three months, suddenly turning around going, oh, uh, <laughs> this story's not panned out the way we were expecting. You know, think about how people have, when people have engaged in the process, you know, the, the groups that have set themselves up. A lot of that's happened after the referendum, you know, and if those people had put yeah. those efforts into their campaign before, they might have had more of an impact on the decision and on shaping what, what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's hard. You know, polling clearly says that the EU is not the only thing that people worry about. People yeah. worry about jobs, their health, education, things like that. And Europe is sort of to the side. Yes. There's no doubt that Brexit is dominating the policy and political landscape. And <laughs> well, you know that in the House of Lords because you're going to be discussing as you say for, for um, weeks and weeks to come. <laughs> and there are two challenges. One we've talked about that it's complex but also incredibly important. And second challenge is that it crowds out other issues that need mm. attention. And that's a big concern for me that you could find yourself out of the European Union and then start to see much more clearly the scale of the challenges the country faces in other ways. You know. 
um, just to, to mention the civil service again, has the civil service got the capacity for Brexit? You know, that's another question that's been raised. Well, it is a question, and I raised it earlier. I think they have recruited a lot more civil service quite rapidly into the specific departments, if you like, mm. that Brexit related. Um, I wonder whether they really do have the capacity in other departments, to, given that it can, you know, something like the um, environment, it will be a huge part of their activities. So I think uh, it does impact on other departments. But in a way, you've got a kind of dual challenge in the sense of for other legislation. It's not just is there capacity, is there's also a question of does the government have the authority at the moment to take through difficult mm-hmm. issues. Um, so we face a, it's a combination of all of these things. It's the dominance of Brexit, um, the impact that has on capacity, and the fact that we have a, a government that is in effect a minority government um, supported by the DUP. All of that combines to make it very hard to confront and chat and deal with some of the big issues that aren't Brexit yeah. at the moment. You know, the finances of local government, health and care, the economy, all these things feel like they're on the back burner whilst we do all this. That's the question, I suppose. It's the wrong question, isn't it? It's not that the civil service can do Brexit or not. It's whether they can do anything else. And, that is, <laughs> and can the government do much else either? Yeah. You mentioned local government. We are at the UK and Changing Europe event on local government. What's its official name, Simon? Uh, I mean, I should know, but I'm going to see you on this local, one. Local and devolved institutions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the um, starting point here on this agenda is actually um, the Prime Minister who said, if you look at her Mansion House speech, I've got it here, um, nerdy man that I am, um, and she says, uh, we will do everything we can to give you more control over your lives. That's her appeal to the nation. But devolution hasn't really featured as a big part of the debate. Um, and this is in a country that is already very centralised. And I think people worry that the only people who are going to take back control are Whitehall and possibly Westminster. And um, that is a justified worry, isn't it, Simon? Because this stuff was it was vaguely mentioned, oh, Scotland's going to leave before the referendum. It was like, well, if you, have, if you vote out, then Scotland's leaving. Um, but it didn't really get beyond that, the discussion during the referendum, did it? No, and so just generally, a lot of what has happened in terms of devolution in the UK has happened, actually all of it's happened during the period of EU membership. So the, the two things kind of got elided into each other. And then when you, you're stopping EU membership, it's not been entirely thought how you unwind all of that and yeah. how that feeds back into the settlement. But I, I think that's right. And I think what I would say is that the government could have made devolution and, and, and localism, you know, reigniting that agenda, in a sense part of what they proposed as the Brexit dividend. It could have been, we will consciously take forward Brexit in a way that devolves and empowers. Um, and I don't feel that that's what they've done. It's not to say there isn't any good work going on on devolution, but the devolution deals have largely ground to a halt, for example. Um, there's no great uh, focus going into the role that local government used to have in relation to Europe and its contribution to amending legislation and things like that. So I think there's there's a, a, a topic here that needs more, more kind of 
profile or a um, discussion actually. And I'm glad that we've got this event today um, because I think it's crucially important. It's actually particularly important in England because you might argue there are particular issues for the devolved nations and their voice has been mm. quite strongly heard. Yeah. But in England, where does that voice come from other than the local government association, for example? So I think it is timely that this event's happening today to ask the question, post-Brexit, if that's where we're heading, what are we doing to create a different um, country and what are we doing to share power? If that was one of the drivers of the alienation that we, we saw through the referendum. Is the reason not as much thinking is being done on this as you would like because, <laughs> come back to it again, the government's a bit stupid? Or is it because Westminster government, as a rule, don't really care about devolution at all, do they? They want to keep all the power in Westminster. I put it more in the second camp than the first. I don't think it's... Uh, it's partly the scale of the challenges already presented by Brexit. So, you know, the border in Ireland is yeah. absolutely mm. critical question. The trade issues are critical. The money's been a big issue. And so, in a sense, I think the government have been driven by events, and I don't think they've had, in quite the way that was there previously, um, that sort of burning mission to, to evolve and, and, and share power. So it's the combination of the two that I think have led, has led to a stalling of this process. It's, it's a bandwidth issue again, capacity, you know, the, there's a degree of crisis management so if you start, if there's already a lot of moving pieces. If you then try to add in Others. dealing with other administrations, and again, remember in Northern Ireland, we still don't have an executive for pretty much the entire period of mm. this. Who do you deal with? And you know, the, you know, I think that's another frustration is that Northern Ireland is so central to this process, but then you don't have yeah, the, the, the democratic body that would give uh, legitimacy to requests that might help advance the UK's agenda. Um, what does it matter? What's the sort of worst case scenario if, well, it if you know, devolution is sort of ignored in all this? It's interesting. We, I, I chaired something called the uh, Localism Commission for a, a voluntary organisation called Locality. Uh, and they did some polling uh, at the point we published and it was quite instructive really. 80% of people said they had kind of little or no impact on national issues. 71% said they had little or no impact on local issues. But here's the point, uh, an overwhelming majority said, we don't think Brexit will make any difference. Now, the whole mantra of Brexit was take back control. <laughs> yes. And it wasn't. I don't think when people said take back control, they meant let's give it all to Whitehall. Ooh, did they? Well, that's a good question for, for the research, the expert. Did, is that what it's like? Back in terms whatever you wanted to mean. Uh, I don't know, but didn't people? That's why you use the phrase. It's, it's uh, yeah. Who doesn't want? Do you want control, James? Uh, you don't. Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time, I think I do. It was, so, it, was I don't know. I, my, I guess my simple point is this: really, why does it matter? Well, because people were promised something from the referendum. They were promised, you know. Um, benefits to our public services, they were promised kind of economic uh, benefits, they were promised more control over our lives. And if nothing flows that gives them any sense that that's happened, then the disillusionment is mm. just going to get greater. That is my strong view. And all the evidence suggests that people, given a choice, 
uh, trust their local institutions more than they do central government. Yes, agreed. Yeah. As, as I mean, expert, yeah. You make the argument that they weren't actually promised these things because it wasn't a ref. You know, it was a, a yeah. election. People felt they were promised those things, yeah. and that's what matters in politics. If that's how you feel, then that's how you act, and it's not surprising that this ends up being a sort of general disillusionment and furthers those patterns of disconnects. Yeah. You know that you know the democratic life of the country. If people don't feel that the system works for them, then they're going to be unhappy. Yeah. Did people think that far ahead? Yes. My personal views is a sort of worrying cocktail of issues for, for ordinary people. Um, you know, we had the longest period of wage stagnation for mm. 150 years. Productivity is um, stalled. Um, balance of trade is an issue. We've still got um, pretty significant austerity continuing, so public services are under huge pressure. Um, and if you then combine that with a sense of people feel disconnected, the gap between the governing and the governed, then you pretty quickly get to a, a set of um, uh, issues that might well lead to populism or um, or something mm. like it. So far, it hasn't in the UK, um, but it, you more at least if there is populism, it's probably been incorporated into the two parties, yeah. the two main yes. parties. But if they don't deliver, if they don't show some sense of change, it, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that post-Brexit people say, what was that all about? Nothing in my life has improved um, and control doesn't feel any more in my gift than, any, than it was before. Maybe I chose the, you know, maybe I want to think again about where my allegiances and where my uh, uh, loyalties lie. Likewise, even if you end up with a kind of reversal of the decision through another referendum. There'll be people who said, you know, we were cheated out of our yeah. original decision. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that there are, this is one of the big problems of Brexit is that there is no happy outcome in the short or medium yeah. term. And, and it's noticeable the Prime Minister talked about saying that she wants to bring the country together, I think was her phrase in the Mansion House speech. Yeah. And many people thought, well, bringing the cabinet together would be a good start. <laughs> But more seriously, does anybody really think this process is unifying the country in any way? Does it feel a more uh, unified country at ease with itself? Um, and do we feel it will be post-Brexit? I think the, those are important questions, actually. She really wants to unify the country. She should bid for the Olympics again. That's the answer, isn't it? That's the only thing that's unified the country <laughs> in, in recent years. Let's do that all over again. That was brilliant and everyone loved it. If she really believes in unifying the country, she should be straight down the IOC and said, we'll do it again in uh, Manchester or something like that. Or Eurovision Song Contest, something like that. Yes, well, that would work. Um, you've got to win that, yeah. You've got to win it. And if you heard the song, I don't think we're going to win it this year. Listen, let's um, finish up with some features. First of all, the best thing and the worst thing about Brexit. Best thing! Oh. Worst thing. Um, which way should we do it? Let's be negative today. What's going to be the best thing about Brexit first? Next thing about Brexit is if we get through this with the minimum amount of damage. I'm afraid this is a damage. That's not a best thing. It that's is that's like a least thing. worst thing. It is a least. There isn't a best thing. For there me. has to be some I sort of upside to it. Woken up in the morning and peered out and tried to see the sunny uplands, and so far they escaped me. Um, uh, 
So I think, truthfully, getting through this with the minimum damage is the best that we can hope for. I'm sorry. I don't want to be... <laughs> that might be the worst, best thing we've had on these podcasts. I'm yeah. sorry about but I dread, to, I dread to ask the next question then. I'm trying to think, maybe we'll see a, a surge in sales of Marmite. I just can't think of what it is. <laughs> Blue passports. Uh, go on then, if that's the best thing, what's going to be the worst well, thing the about worst Brexit? Thing, I guess, is that um, uh, we uh, come out of it um, in a way that seriously damages our economy and actually That's an if though do you think we will come out of it with a seriously damaged economy the truth is I don't know yet because we're it's, it's in flight I think it's possible uh, that we an agreement can be reached but at the moment they're miles apart and um, recent events have not uh, brought them close enough yet now we're into a negotiation who knows but um, I think there is a serious risk that the deal that we comes out with doesn't create friction in the trade, and that has an economic consequence for us. And, and just by the way, the other bit of the kind of worst thing is it happens at a point where you know the, the kind of global order is, is under great strain as well. You know, so we find our potential allies being a US that's Mm. Um, moving towards tariffs and, and places like Saudi Arabia, it just doesn't feel like a good. You know, it's back to the three quarters million, the packet of crisps. This is quite a toxic packet of crisps in some aspects, isn't it? <laughs> I, 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 you're trying to tempt me into naming a packet of crisps that I think is toxic, and then we'll get sued by the Monster Munch Monster or something. I'm not suggesting Monster Munch are toxic. Is that toxic? Okay, we speak more general than that. Yeah, I agree. I'm with it. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. It's not natural. Oh, what's that? Simon running upstairs to change the buffet, get rid of all the prawn cocktail crisps. Finally, the feature whose name I always get wrong. Do you want to go, Simon? What's it called? In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. I can remember exactly what it is, but yes, recommendations for understanding Brexit. Oh, God. Well, I said, guess, understanding why we've ended up here, of course. I think Tim Shipman's books are hard to read, really. Do you know, nobody's recommended that yet. That's I'm really surprised, All Out War. Um, I've just momentarily forgotten the second Four, four, four yeah. Yeah, that's it. And he's doing another one. And he's doing another one. He is a very fine journalist, Tim Shipman. His meticulous attention to the detail is great. And he does bring it to life, and I think you can see in his books uh, the kind of path, you know, at a, on a blow by blow level how we've ended up where we have. It's a, it's a good recommendation. I'm surprised we haven't had it so far. Simon, um, more recommendations from you? Was it going to be some more Twitter accounts? No, not more Twitter accounts. Oh. I thought about this. I'm going for a song this time. Excellent. I'm going for, for the Beatles. We can work it out. Oh, okay. I, I did actually, you did trigger a thought in my mind. When, I, when we first came. When we first had the referendum, I did feel that there was a, a space for Brexit, the musical. And I think that somebody's done it, I'm annoyed about that because I thought I could cash in. Have they done it? Yeah, I don't, think it, I don't think it made big impression. No, big impression. Big space for another one. But oh, okay. I think um, we, need, we need a really, you know, something like Hamilton, where well, a hip hop version maybe of Brexit, you know, Brexit the musical, I, sung in, in hip hop. Um, it's got to be a winner and you just can't see how it wouldn't be and you've got to have a vote at the end have you changed your mind it's not really a recommendation it's some sort of 
uh, recommendation for something that doesn't exist. It's very yeah, existential. Yeah. That I like it. It's different. Yeah, yeah. It's well, I think we should try. You know, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Fringe Programme will be getting put together right now. There you go, Bob. Get your, get your uh, whatever it is, 56 words together in the, uh, the programme and then you just have to put it on by August. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Nothing to a man of your calibre. So, we started talking about serious accusations levelled at the civil service. We ended talking about musicals. I half expected Bob or Simon to say, let's do the show right here. I'm sure there's been a Brexit musical at the Fringe, but a Bob Kerslake endorsed production would surely fly. Move over Bob Fosse, Bob Kerslake's the new name in musical theatre. And talking of music, Simon quit promoting Twitter accounts for a song. I think that's our third song recommendation that we've had. If we could get a few more. We could, uh, maybe ten, we could uh, put together the Brexit album or the Brexit playlist on Spotify or whatever it is that the kids do these days. We would include on that the podcast music, which is Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. Um, Bob Kerslake had both fascinating insight, I thought, and strong opinions, albeit mainly about crisps. He doesn't like prawn cocktail, does he? He doesn't like prawn cocktail at all. If you've got strong opinions or insight to share, please get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter. The email address is UK in a Changing Europe Podcasts at gmail.com or my website is james-miller.com. Or you can get the UK in a Changing Europe gang at UK and EU on Twitter or UK and EU.ac.uk on the internet. Please give us feedback. Please tell us if there's anybody you want us to have on as a guest. I'm sorting out the final tranche of guests. So please let us know if there's anyone you want us to have on, anyone you think we've missed, anyone that we ought to be speaking to that perhaps is not getting heard in the Brexit debate. If you enjoyed this, please rate and review it on your preferred podcast platform and come back in two weeks for another episode. This has been the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and Changing Europe supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you.